All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, number 15. Quarantine special for mid-spring, 2020. She's not there. Florence Leontine Lowe Pancho Barnes, Ethel Hune Bobo Bailey, and Princess Olga Demidoff Trebetskoy Stover. Cemetery as a National Historic Landmark, an Arboretum, a Sculpture Garden, a Nature Preserve, and an Active Cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Bala Kenwood, was founded in 1869 and has a history and a population of its own. As we continue through our second month of physical separation from other human beings, living anyway, I hope you are making it out to the cemeteries, which remain open for walking, biking, and meditating, along with sightseeing, photography, and perhaps spotting the foxes. This lockdown has given me a chance to do a lot of research, and I came across the stories of three fascinating women, none of whom are buried at either Laurel Hill Cemetery or West Laurel Hill Cemetery, but who have strong family connections there. Ethel Hune Bailey was the spoiled daughter of the spoiled second wife of Philadelphia multimillionaire George Arthur Hune. Buried on Millionaire's Row near his business partners Peter A.B. Widener and William Lukens Elkins. Florence Leontine Lowe was the granddaughter of builder and architect Richard Dobbins, whose mausoleum looking over the Schuylkill River gives a view of his grandest achievement, Memorial Hall in Fairmount Park. But under her nickname and married name of Pancho Barnes, she became known as a stunt pilot who, with her inheritance, opened a popular drinking spot for test pilots near Muroc Airfield in the Mojave Desert of California. And Princess Olga Demidoff Trebetskoy Stover was briefly the wife of Germantown born and raised archaeologist and businessman Edward Royal Stover. Her life is the thing of legends. None of them are buried here, but their stories are too good to pass by. So I hope you enjoy this special quarantine edition of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories. She's not there. George Albert Hume was born in Philadelphia on April 15, 1850. His father was Charles Hume, a bricklayer, whose family had been in Philadelphia for many generations. His mother, Cecilia Hume, came from an old and influential Virginia family. George was one of 13 children. He went to public school in Philadelphia and was quick to learn. 
1862, by the age of 12, he had passed enough grades to join the office of stockbrokers W.H. Travis and Company. He stayed with them until 1866, when he resigned to accept a more responsible position with the firm of Cooper and Graff, also stockbrokers. By age 17, he was completely on his own, and in 1868, the 18-year-old George Hune married a 17-year-old Emma Parham, 1851 to 1895, daughter of Samuel P. and Mary Parham. They had four children together, George Jr. in 1869, Samuel in 1873, Florence in 1876, and William in 1879. Hune stayed with Cooper and Graff for 13 years. In 1879, he formed a co-partnership with William H. Tevis, and in 1882 became a partner of Robert Glenn Denning. He was good at making money. Peter A.B. Widener, Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section K, Lot 338, and William Lukens Elkins, Bridge Section, Lots 21 through 54, took notice. There's a lot more story about the number of lots owned by the Elkins. When Widener and Elkins formed the Philadelphia Traction Company in 1883, they hired George to broker the many transactions required to consolidate the city's streetcar lines. In 1887, the Hune family moved to a brownstone mansion at 1313 North Broad Street, just a couple of blocks away from Widener and Elkins, who both had mansions at Broad and Girard. Besides being business associates, the three men had all become good friends, and they traveled in the same social circle. Widener became the wealthiest man in Philadelphia. Hunesworth was not quite as much, but he did have in the tens of millions of dollars. When his partner Glenn Denning died in 1893, Hune organized a new firm with Robert E. Glenn Denning, the son of his old partner. Then George's wife Emma took ill in the spring of 1895 and went to the shore to convalesce. Emma Parham Hune died in Atlantic City at age 44 on May 23, 1895 from anemic convulsions. Hune and Glenn Denning dissolved, and in May 1895, a new co-partnership was organized. George A. Hune and Sons, composed of George Hune, George Hune Jr., and Samuel Parham Hune. This firm became one of the most important of the banking and brokerage concerns in Philadelphia. Their office was located in the Bullet Building at 4th and Chestnut, later in the Land Trust Building. On October 8, 1895, George's daughter Florence married Philip J. Walsh. As a wedding gift, George bought them a mansion in Overbrook. And in 1898, at age 48, three years after Emma died, George did something that would practically destroy the Hune family and the Hune business. He married Alice Jenny Yasigi, 1868-1919, a recent divorcee who was 20 years his junior and only one year older than George Jr. Alice Janney was one of the most attractive women in America. Her father was one of the wealthiest men in Baltimore. She had learned while quite young to excel at having fun and spending money. In February of 1890, Alice had received an offer of marriage from Baron Janisch of Vienna 
but her father refused the proposal. So on August 6, 1890, Alice married Thomas Goddard Yasiji, son of the Greek and Turkish consul. Alice had two sons with Yasiji, Leslie, who died as an infant in 1891, and La, born in 1892 and given his father's mother's maiden name, L-O-I-R. In November of 1897, Yasiji's father, Joseph, was convicted of embezzlement and sent to prison for 12 years. A month later, Alice announced in the newspaper that she was bored with the marriage and she filed for divorce, which was granted on January 7, 1898. And four weeks later, she married George A. Hume Sr., old enough to be her father. On May 23, 1899, Alice gave birth to a daughter, Ethel Madeline Hune. George adored Alice and Ethel and gave them anything that they desired. In 1901, he built a four-story mansion at the northwest corner of 16th and Walnut, designed, of course, by Horace Trumbauer. That was in the Rittenhouse Square district, which and Alice staffed it with 11 servants. The Hunes, however, were new money. They were not accepted by members of old Philadelphia society, most of whom did live around Rittenhouse Square or in remote Chestnut Hill. Now, Alice was bound and determined to be accepted by high society, and she tried to spend her way onto the list of rich and exclusive East Coasters. She held extravagant parties at Newport during the summer season, where guests could expect lavish gifts like diamond-encrusted cigarette holders. She almost made her goal when she received a cherished invitation to attend a dinner being put on by the Sarina of Society, Mrs. Stuyvesant Fish. Alice had a special gown made for the occasion, but was furious when she opened it on the day of the dinner and found it to be the wrong color. She destroyed the dress and her boudoir in a mad rage, and then she neglected to send a message to Mrs. Fish that they would be detained. The Hunes never received another invitation. Despite Alice's spending and temper and a heroin habit she had picked up along the way, George loved her and his daughter and stepson. When Wa turned 10 in December 1901, George's birthday gift to him was a million dollars. Wa served in the U.S. Navy during World War I and is buried at Arlington National Cemetery. George eventually came to his senses when he saw his fortune dwindling. He put his foot down. No more summers at Newport. No more extravagant spending. When Alice was arrested on drug charges, it was the last straw. In November of 1911, George placed an ad in the Philadelphia newspapers stating that he and his wife had signed letters of separation and he would no longer be responsible for her debts. He gave her $3 million and essentially threw her out, but he did not file for divorce. Alice decided that life in the United States was unbearable, so she and Ethel took off for Paris. Ethel, who had acquired the nickname Bobo, spent the next three years living in Paris and Philadelphia, while Alice, of course, spent down her separation settlement. When the war started in Europe, she moved back to the United States, living with a cousin in Newport. But George loved his daughter. 
On January 10, 1917, he presented Ethel to Philadelphia Society at a debutante dinner dance in the ballroom of the Ritz-Carlton. Boba was the first of Philadelphia Society girls to bob her hair, and every year, as skirts became shorter and shorter, she wore hers just a little bit shorter than the other girls. When the United States entered the Great War, George made some unfortunate investments. In the spring of 1918, Bobo met and fell in love with young Joe Bailey, son of a former Texas senator, then in training for service overseas. Much to Alice's disappointment, Bobo and Joe got married after five dates on May 22, 1918, the day before her 19th birthday. The marriage dashed Alice's dream of her daughter marrying into New York High Society. Joe Bailey served well, and he was promoted to captain, and he was honorably discharged in March of 1919. Joe and Bobo moved in with George in his Philadelphia mansion. Joe wanted to settle down. He was a bookworm and a scholar. Bobo, on the other hand, loved the nightlife of the city with her young friends. And her skirts were so short that you could almost see her knees. Joe enrolled for the fall semester at University of Virginia, and Bobo moved to Charlottesville with him. She was bored to tears, and after just a few weeks, made a beeline back to Philadelphia and announced that she was filing for divorce. The year continued as a nightmare when George's banking firm failed, and he went from multimillionaire to debtor. And to top it off, on October 30th, Alice died in her New York apartment. She was 49 years old. George and she had partially reconciled, but she was buried back at home in Baltimore. Bobo had now moved back in with her father. On May 12, 1921, she was heading to the Broad Street train station to visit with friends in New York City when her car was struck by a trolley at 19th and Jefferson. Bobo was pinned under the car and taken to Lankanaw Hospital, then at Girard and Corinthian, where she remained in a coma with a fractured skull for a few days before recovering. Her divorce became final on November 19th. Bobo decided to go to France to recover, but she no longer had her father's wallet to support her. A childhood friend, Josephine Fifi Widener Lighty, granddaughter of the late Peter A.B. Widener, was recovering from a divorce herself and offered to pay Bobo's way as a companion. While in Paris, she surprised everyone by taking a job as a sales girl in a dress shop. And she was pretty good at it. Her connection with her father was tenuous but viable. And when George became ill in 1924, Bobo returned to Philadelphia, pawning her remaining furs and jewelry to be by his side. While stateside, she gave interviews to local newspapers. Quote, I am absolutely penniless. All my friends know it, and I see no reason to be ashamed of it. I hate work. I wouldn't consider working here, and I would detest living in New York. End quote. She also had to deny being romantically involved with a French dancer named Maurice. To add insult to injury, in 1925, George's grandson, Tevis, son of his youngest son, accomplished athlete, friend of the Prince of Wales, 
announced that he was quitting his job in a brokerage house in order to become a banjo player with a traveling jazz band. Bobo came back to the stage twice more to visit her father in 1926 and 1928, but she had settled permanently in Paris, one of the lost generation. Her life there is a bit of a mystery. I could find nothing. In late 1928, she became quite ill and was admitted to a hospital. She deteriorated and died on January 10, 1929, of cirrhosis of the liver. She was 29 years old. She's buried in Paris. George outlived her only by a few weeks, dying on March 20, 1929. He passed away in his sleep from heart disease. For the last years of his life, he received a generous monthly check from Joseph D. Widener, son of Peter and father of Fifi, who never forgot where his family's wealth had come from. George Arthur Hewn is buried on Millionaire's Row at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Bridge Section, Lots 7 and 8, just 100 feet or so from his business partners Peter A.B. Widener and William Lukens Elkins. Also in the plot are his first wife, Emma, his oldest son, George Jr., who died in 1932, and other family members. The inscription of his stone sadly says only, George A. Hune, yours and mine. And his favorite granddaughter, Ethel Madeline Hune Bailey, she's not there. Richard James Dobbin was a well-known builder of Philadelphia. When he died in Pasadena, California in 1893, his obituary gave a little biography. Talked about how he was born in 1832 at Mount Holly, New Jersey. He started in life as a bricklayer, and then he advanced to the business of a builder. It mentioned his main building of the Centennial Memorial Hall, erected by him according to the architect's plans. The First National, the Philadelphia Saving Fund, and the United States Naval Asylum in this city, the Farmer's Market, on the site of which now stands the Reading Terminal, and other edifices were put up under his contracts. Mr. Dobbins also had a family estate called Ellerslie, located on the east side of Old York Road, between Ashburn Road and Melrose Avenue. The estate was divided up piece by piece as that area grew, and Ellerslie was demolished eventually. The grounds are now the home of Edith Jeshurun and the Mandel Education Campus of the Federation of Jewish Agencies of Philadelphia. Dobbins was married to Caroline Dobbins, who was born in 1839. When he got sick in 1893, they moved to Southern California. Uh, it didn't do his health much good, unfortunately. He died shortly thereafter and was interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery in a beautiful mausoleum which overlooks the Schuylkill River. On a clear day, you can see downriver to uh, Monument Hall his uh, major accomplishment, which still stands there in Fairmount Park. Now, his wife Caroline stayed in San Marino with her daughter, Florence May Dobbins, who is also not buried in Laurel Hill. They had a large mansion 
1895, Florence married Thaddeus Lowe Jr. His father, Thaddeus Lowe, 1832-1913, was the father of military air reconnaissance with balloons during the Civil War. He was also independently wealthy, as were the Dobbins. Florence and Thaddeus Jr. had a son, William Emmert Lowe, who was very studious and not at all athletic. He was actually a bit of a disappointment to his ever-active father and grandfather. But then they had a second child, Florence Leontine Lowe, who was born on July 22, 1901. She was a bit of a tomboy, immediately her paternal grandfather's favorite. Her maternal grandmother, Caroline, didn't know how to handle her. Florence was a difficult student. She actually preferred riding her horse around the massive family estate to any studies. Grandfather Lowe took Florence to an air show when she was 10 years old, and she immediately knew that that was what she wanted to do with her life. Grandfather Lowe died before she was a teenager. She missed him greatly. He had unfortunately made bad investments late in life, and there was no longer any inheritance from him. Now, Florence briefly ran away to Mexico on her horse named Dobbins, but returned, and much to everyone's great surprise, she married an itinerant Episcopalian preacher named Calvin Rankin Barnes in 1921. They had a son almost immediately. When her mother died at age 50 in 1924, Florence received an inheritance from the Dobbins side of the family. But she was now in this loveless marriage with a child, and she yearned to return to her active solo life. She ran away again to Mexico, disguised as a man, and fought with the revolutionaries. She and one of her male partners thought of themselves as Don Quixote with his faithful companion, but he tagged her Pancho rather than Sancho. The name stuck. She was now Pancho Barnes. She returned to San Marino and with her inheritance took flying lessons and bought a plane. She started barnstorming and competing in races. Despite a crash in 1929, she returned to the Women's Air Derby in 1930 and broke Amelia Earhart's world women's speed record reaching just above 196 miles per hour. Barnes then moved to Hollywood to work as a stunt pilot for movies. In 1931, she started the Associated Motion Picture Pilots, a union of film industry stunt flyers which promoted flying safety and standardized pay for aerial stunt work. She flew in several air adventure movies of the 1930s, including Howard Hughes' Hell's Angels, 1930. Barnes lost most of her money in the Great Depression. By 1935, she had only her apartment in Hollywood left. But Grandmother Caroline died in 1935, and Pancho came into the rest of her Dobbins inheritance. She sold her apartment, and in March 1935, bought 180 acres of land in the Mojave Desert, near the Rogers Dry Lake Bed and the nascent Muroc Field, which was then called March Field because it was an adjunct property of March Army Air Base at the time. Later, it became Edwards Air Force Base. On her land, Pancho Barnes built the Happy Bottom Writing Club, also known as the Rancho Oro Verde Fly-In Dude Ranch, 
which was a dude ranch and a restaurant, which catered to airmen at the nearby airfield and her friends from California. Barnes became very close friends with many of the early test pilots, including Chuck Yeager, Robert Anderson, Bob Hoover, Walt Williams, Jack Ridley, General Jimmy Doolittle, Buzz Aldrin, Slick Goodland, and others. Barnes Ranch became famous for the parties and the high-flying lifestyle of all the guests. The Air Force tried to buy Pancho out in the early 1950s, and she would not sell to them, but the ranch mysteriously burned in 1953. Eventually, she and the Air Force made amends. She actually made her case, my grandfather invented the Air Force. Now, at Edwards Air Force Base, the officer's mess is called the Pancho Barnes Room. She died of breast cancer at age 73 in 1975. She was cremated, and her ashes scattered over the former site of her Happy Bottom Writing Club, which had been bought and built with her grandfather Dobbin's money. Many people first heard about Pancho's life and personality when she was portrayed in the 1983 epic film The Right Stuff, adapted from Tom Wolfe's best-selling book of the same name. Kim Stanley played her. Pancho was also the subject of a heavily fictionized 1988 TV film called Pancho Barnes. It starred Valerie Bertinelli. There have been three biographies written about this remarkable woman. She was indeed the stuff of legends, but she's not there. She is not buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, although her grandfather and her grandmother are. There is more than one mystery at Laurel Hill Cemetery. There are large plots with no stones, leaving us to wonder who's buried there. There are people who are worth millions of dollars who have a simple stone or no stone at all, such as Hugh Craig and his sons. There's a man who has a university named for him residing in a simple family plot. A man who took the secrets of the founding fathers of our country to the grave with him. And is that really Charles Thompson buried there, or is it one of the family servants? Then there is the stone of Edward Royal Stover in Section T, lots 174-175. It reads, April 8th, 1887, October 13th, 1930 archaeologist and engineer, major air service world war, married Olga Demidoff, Princess Serge Trebetskoy, June 6, 1895, who hopes to lie here someday. End quote. The family plot predates Edward's death by more than 50 years. The first burials were in November of 1875. And the nine people buried there all have the last name of Stover, with the most recent burial in 1933. But the name of Olga Demidov Trebetskoy Stover appears no place in the official records of Laurel Hill Cemetery. 
I could find traces of Olga in internet searches, but she completely disappears from the scene in 1941. I did the best that I could, though. Olga Demidov was born in 1895 to a Russian royal family, the Demidovs, who dated back to the 1600s. She married into another Russian royal family, the Trebetskoys, in 1913, when she wed Prince Sergei. His family dated back even further to the 1300s. They quickly had a son, also named Serge, but the family escaped from Russia to France in 1914 with babe in arms, leaving both family fortunes behind. Apparently there was another son. Now this information comes from the 2001 obituary of Prince Serge Trebetskoy, who died in Staunton, Virginia, and who was the oldest son of Sergei and Olga. There is an Olga Demidoff in the Internet Movie Database about this time. She appeared in 10 movies between 1909 and 1919. Most of them were made in France. One of the movies, Jack, made in 1913, is actually available on YouTube. It is unlikely this is our Olga, however. She would have only been 14 years old in 1909. Although I did sort of see a resemblance between this actress and an older, stouter Olga from later newspaper clippings. Olga appears in the Washington Post in November 1918, just before the end of the war. This article says, quote, Olga Demidoff, daughter of the former Paul Alexandrovich Demidoff, one-time governor of Kiev, and widow of Prince Sergius Trubetskoy, who was killed in the early months of the present war, belongs to the non-princely branch of the House of Demidoff. It is timely to explain this, since she was married last month in Paris to Major Edward Royal Stover, USA, who until the beginning of the present war was an employee of the Imperial Ottoman Bank at Smyrna. He graduated from the University of Pennsylvania just 10 years ago and is a son of Mrs. William B. Stover of Wayne Avenue, Germantown, Philadelphia. End quote. Edward actually graduated from Princeton, not Penn, in 1908. He had immediately joined an archaeological expedition in Asia Minor, especially Turkey. In 1916, he went to Constantinople, now Istanbul, for the Rockefeller Foundation, and he remained there until relations with this country were broken off in the spring of 1917. He met Olga in Paris. In 1920, he visited his brother in Philadelphia and delivered a talk as a member of the American Relief Administration. There is no mention of his family in any of those articles about his trip to Philadelphia. Now, Olga next shows up in a January 24, 1923 article with a dateline Paris. She was in the employ of a Madame Helene at 28 Rue Bray. It is slightly called a, quote, house of rendezvous, end quote. She was charged with jewel theft. And when she testified before the court, she explained that she had escaped from Russia in 1915 and met Major Edward R. Stover, former Princeton man, now said to be a lawyer in Chicago. She went to France with him, she said, and they were married after Stover had joined the aviation forces.
Quote, we separated in 1920. As my father, Prince Dermendorf, and other members of our large family were all gone, I was forced to seek other means of making a livelihood. It was then that I heard of Madame Helene's house, where poverty-stricken noblewomen were aided in finding rich husbands and protectors. Six months afterward, Ned Hillsberg, a wealthy New Yorker, came to the house, and I met him and agreed to be his companion, provided he paid my fee of 1,000 francs a day, half of which went to Madame Helene. A thousand francs in 1923 was the equivalent to just over $60 then, or $920 today. As another aside, I cannot determine if this is the same Madame Helene who mysteriously received a significant portion of Anthony J. Drexel Jr.'s estate when he died in 1934. Now, Hillsburg, a Broadway producer and a notorious big spender, had come to Paris in 1922. He met the princess, and he had fallen in love with the 27-year-old beauty. From Olga's standpoint, this was a business proposition. Hillsburg produced a canceled check for 5,000 francs, about $4,600 today, which he said was the price of a fortnight's company. When she returned to Paris from his via in Biarritz, Olga took $50,000, equivalent to more than $750,000 today, worth of jewelry, which she said was a gift from Hillsburg. Hillsburg said she stole it. The newspaper article notes that the princess, quote, is called one of the most beautiful women in Europe. She is a tall brunette, always exquisitely gowned, and was famous for her salons in St. Petersburg before the war, end quote. Well, it is unlikely that an 18-year-old Olga was hosting salons before the war. Philadelphian Edward Royal Stover died on October 13, 1930, at the age of 43. Although separated from Olga for at least 10 years, she is still listed as his surviving widow in the obituary. He was buried in the Stover family plot at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Olga next appears in the news on May 23, 1937, in New York City. Apparently, during an argument in her third-floor apartment, she threw a wine bottle in anger at her bickering partner, who ducked. The bottle then went out the window and struck a passerby who had just left a nearby bowling alley, knocking him senseless and requiring a trip to the hospital. Olga was arrested and arraigned for felonious assault, but two days later in the courtroom, her purported victim was unable to identify her as the one who threw the bottle, and the charges were dismissed. As Olga Trebetskoy made her exit from the court, she put her thumb to her nose and waggled her fingers at the judge in an air of defiance. The article notes that she had to lift her veil to do so. Our next Olga sighting comes in 1941. Again, she was arrested, this time on suspicion of running a brothel in New York City at 150 East 63rd Street. In late June, the police raided her apartment and found two distinguished gentlemen whom the judge instructed could only be referred to as Mr. X and Mr. Y to avoid international complications. The New York Daily News would only say that, quote, 
Mr. X bears a military title beginning with G in a country that gets bundles. And Mr. Y, who represents the free elements of a country that once gave us a statue to put in a harbor. End quote. There were four young ladies present. Two of them rapidly escaped. The other two were described as a 23-year-old dancer in a Broadway musical comedy and, quote, a blonde charmer who lives at the Hotel Shelton, end quote. Reporters dug around and noted that the city phone directory lists the same number for Mrs. E.R. Stover, Princess Olga Trebetskoy, and Prince Serge Trebetskoy, whom she assured the police had been killed in the war. On her first appearance in court, Olga explained to reporters that the gathering in her apartment had simply been a reunion of World War spies over a case of champagne. She said that she herself had been a spy for her native Russia. After weeks of denying doing anything illegal, Olga finally, on August 20th, 1941, confessed that, quote, love had a commercial aspect in her duplex apartment, end quote. She explained that her 73-year-old mother, who is also a princess, had just arrived from Paris. Quote, mother wouldn't understand, so I wanted to get this whole business out of the way. The poor lady is distraught enough as it is. She came here because she couldn't get enough milk for her cat. End quote. The Montgomery, Alabama advertiser wins the prize for the least subtle headline when reporting this story. It was three words only sacrifices for pussy. Of course, she tried to back out of her confession when she found out that she would probably serve six months in the workhouse. She begged and pleaded with the judge, saying that, quote, my character had been without blemish for the 46 years of my life, end quote. The judge bought it and suspended her sentence on September 3rd, 1941. Four months later, in December 1941, 19 days after Pearl Harbor, Olga showed up in West Hartford, Connecticut for the marriage of her son, Prince Serge Trebetskoy, to Dorothy Livingston Ulrich. The bridegroom was at the time active duty military at Camp Stewart, Georgia. After this, Olga disappears from the newspaper. I did a little sleuthing. I found Sergei and Dorothy's son, through the internet. He lives in Petersburg, Virginia, and he agreed to answer some questions. First, our Olga is not the actress Olga. He did verify that Olga was his grandmother. She spent her final years on the island of Mallorca, where he visited her several times and where she is buried, he thinks, in 1973. He also said that his father spent many delightful days in Germantown with his stepfather, Edward Stover. He mentioned that, quote, at the time of her death, we did not realize that she had this plot in Laurel Hill, even though she mentioned to me once that she thought she might have a plot there. As it happens, the grandson is a fan of Victorian cemeteries and has visited Laurel Hill more than once during trips to Philadelphia. He was kind enough to share some other insights about his grandmother. Quote, it appears to me that she fabricated a good deal of the information that was picked up in the press. For starters, her first husband, Sergei Trebetskoy, was not killed during the war. 
after they divorced, each remarried, and actually he did not die until the 1960s after being hit by a car as a pedestrian in Paris. In fact, I met him when I was a child. He had, I believe, two children by his second marriage. I found my grandmother difficult at best. She was smart and an excellent conversationalist. She was like a walking history book and had known many historical figures. But I could only deal with her in small doses, and my parents felt the same. The events in New York led them to leave New York City, a city that they loved. End quote. I cannot thank the grandson enough for this information. It was wonderful to find these things out. He also cites a family legend that the major film star of the 1920s and 30s, Pola Negre, born Apollonia Szewupik in 1897, claimed that his great-grandfather, Paul Demidoff, Olga's father, was in fact her father. And there is evidence to support that, since Negri's mother was an employee on one of his estates in Poland. This would make Olga and Pola Negri half-sisters. An amazing life. Russian royalty, self-proclaimed spy, Parisian female companion, alleged jewel thief, a silent with wine bottle, habitual liar, and madam of a high-class New York City brothel. Or was it just a reunion of spies? I think that Olga Demidov Trubetskoy Stover is our perfect finale for She's Not There. Now featured at Laurel Hill Cemetery through the end of 2020. Their legacies, the women of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries, an exhibit that celebrates the achievements of 16 women buried at Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries. This exhibit is just one way that the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries are celebrating 100 women for the 100 years since the passing of the 19th Amendment. The exhibit is on display in the museum at Laurel Hill Cemetery, right next to the gatehouse. It will run through the end of the year. It's open to the public Monday through Friday from 8.30 until 4.30, and Saturday and Sunday from 9.30 until 4.30, when the gatehouse is open. For now, you're going to have to wait for the lockdown to be over before you can see it, but I do recommend it. The exhibit is free, but donations to the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill cemeteries are greatly appreciated. Also remember that all past episodes of All Bones Considered are available for streaming or download from Apple Podcasts or Podbean. In the June edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, it's on with the show. Adam Forpaw was a horse trader who ended up owning one of the biggest circuses in America and had constant run-ins with his chief rival, P.T. Barnum. J. Fred Zimmerman and his partners controlled virtually every theater on the East Coast in the late 1890s and 1900s until their grip was broken by the Schubert brothers. And Edward Fry, impresario, managed the Astor Opera House in New York City during its entire time, including the famed Shakespeare riots of 1849.
Laurel Hill Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia, just a block from the SEPTA 61 bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Balakinwood, with parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Both Laurel Hills are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from May to October, and from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. November through April, even during the quarantine. You can wander on your own, or you can take more than what are usually more than 100 guided tours given by knowledgeable volunteer guides every year. Unfortunately, the guides have uh, been shut out for the last couple of months and will be through at least May. We're certainly hoping to resume our usual guided tour schedule as things calm down and maybe try to catch up with some of the tours that we were not able to give during late winter and spring. If you like, however, there are excellent apps that you can download for both cemeteries. Um, I especially recommend the Laurel Hill app that will take you from place to place in the cemetery. It might be architecture, it might be artists, it might be any of a number of topics. But you can learn a lot about the cemeteries from the apps. Find out more at thelaurelhillcemetery.org or westlaurelhill.com. And once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill, and you have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. Up next are the references that I used. This podcast resulted from what started to be simple research for a tour of the central section of Laurel Hill that's confined to the paved roads for people with limited mobility in wheelchairs and scooters. I walked the entire route, writing down names from stones as I went and then researching them. I discovered the Pancho Barnes-Richard Dobbins connection on the same day that I discovered Eleanor Nellie Mayo Elverson, the failed opera singer that I talked about in A Night at the Opera. The Dobbins and Elverson mausoleums are next-door neighbors. I got to Bridge 5 and I found Taylor Milton Euler, but there was really not enough about him to be of interest. Um, on the other side of Hewn is Archibald Loudon Snowden, a city politician and director of the U.S. Mint, plus great-grandfather of singer-songwriter Loudon Snowden Wainwright III of Dead Skunk fame. And we'll talk more about him later. I actually didn't expect much from the Hewn site that was in between Snowden and Euler, but I got trapped going down the rabbit hole. For George Hewn, I got most of the information from prominent and progressive Pennsylvanians of the 19th century, a review of their careers, volume three, published in 1898 and with six different editors. Hewn is covered on pages 192 and 193. 
Alice Jenny Yasiji Hyun and Ethel Madeline Bobo Hyun Bailey were copiously covered in the society pages of late 19th and early 20th century American newspapers. Two articles in particular deserve your attention if you want further information. The first, with no author identified, is from the Pittsburgh Press Sunday edition from October 17, 1920, almost exactly a century ago. Its title is The Blighted Storybook Romance of the Short-Skirted Heiress and the Studious Soldier. Like some delightful dream of a novelist was their love affair until the sleepy little southern university town proved too much for the late Mrs. George Hewn's beautiful but vivacious daughter. The other is from the Pittsburgh Sun-Telegraph from November 18, 1945. It's an article called Tragedies of Society. There is a full page dedicated to the story of Alice getting invited to Mrs. Fish's dinner party, only to have everything fall apart when the wrong colored dress arrived. Other newspaper articles supplied other details. Pancho Barnes was an easy one to reference. She has a Wikipedia page. There have been three biographies published about her. The one that I found and really enjoyed was called The Happy Bottom Writing Club, The Life and Times of Pancho Barnes. It was written by Lauren Kessler and was published in 2000. Plus, it's a lot of fun to read. Then we come to Olga Demidov Trubetskoy Stover. This was pure detective work, using newspapers from 1918 up to her son's obituary in 2001, and then the bonus of finding her grandson online. I read about two dozen articles. I tracked her across continents from city to city. I do owe a debt of gratitude to Rich Wilhelm, another Laurel Hill tour guide for sharing his research on Olga, and the title of the podcast, She's Not There. To David Germay, weekend curator of Laurel Hill Cemetery, who gave me insight about what it was probably like to be a Russian princess at the time of the revolution. And especially to Olga's grandson, who filled in many missing pieces and provided more insights about his maddeningly complex grandmother. Thanks for listening. Oh, and the excerpts we heard of She's Not There from The Zombies, the original, with Colin Blumstone on vocal, from Santana, from Vanilla Fudge, and from the television show Glee.